You're listening to Offscript, the Atlantic Canada Politics Podcast. My name is Mark Coffin, and I'm your host. On this episode of Offscript, we're talking about the power women in Canadian politics have begun to wield over the last week. And there's always this language of the family, right? You become part of the family, the liberal family. After a while, you also realize that MLAs recognize that they have power and they like to use it. And when you're part of a family, Mark, there are a lot of activities and they often involve alcohol. Um, And power and alcohol can be a dangerous concoction. My guest this week is Michelle Coffin. Michelle has worked for several different leaders of the Nova Scotia Liberal Party as their directors of communications, including its current leader before he became premier. She's a professor of political science at Dalhousie and St. Mary's Universities in Halifax and is a regular commentator and pundit on CBC. I guess first thing first, we should let people know that we are cousins. We are. Um, so first cousins. First cousins. And top three questions I get in this work are, one, are you Michelle's cousin? <laughs> Two, are you the Mark Coffin that donates hundreds of dollars to the Liberal Party each year? <laughs> and I am not that Mark Coffin. Uh, and then three is from students that volunteer for us. Are you the M Coffin teaching my course at Dal this year? So two out of three. That's not bad. Yeah. And the answer to that one is no. You are the professor in the family. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just uh, I guess to give listeners uh, who uh, don't know you uh, a little bit about who you are, um, you started working in politics back in 2001? 2001. And you were director of communications for several different liberal leaders? I was, but in 2001 when I started, I was the communications officer, then I was promoted to communications advisor, and then I was communications advisor and uh, advisor of communications and research, and then uh, I was communications director. What I thought we would do today is talk about uh, some of the stuff that has happened in Canadian politics in the last week, starting kind of with what's happened here in okay. Nova Scotia. Uh, so I wanted to talk about uh, what happened last week with Jamie Bailey and the PCs, then about the broader political culture uh, here in Nova Scotia and the role that sexist behavior uh, plays in Nova Scotian politics, and then kind of expand it a bit to, to what's happening in Canadian politics. For, for folks that uh, didn't follow every little bit last week, I would just give a, a quick summary of uh, what happened. So last Wednesday, Jamie Bailey resigned from his position as MLA and as party leader. Later in the day, the party president, Tara Miller, and interim leader, Carla McFarlane, held a press conference making it clear that an investigation was conducted and concluded that Mr. Bailey had breached the House of Assembly policy on prevention and resolution of harassment in the workplace, a uh, policy that may need a shorter name. Um, and later it became clear that the incident described was uh, one of sexual harassment. Um, not a ton has been shared so far. Uh, what they have said is that uh, you know, the dates and times related to when things were reported, when caucus was informed, that there was an investigation, that Bailey was asked to resign, that he didn't volunteer to do it. Um, and we know not so much about who the investigator was, what firm they worked with, if they're a part of a firm, who the victim was, um, understandably, uh, virtually any details surrounding, I guess, the severity of the incident, and nobody's heard from Jamie himself. What I wanted to start off by uh, exploring, I guess, with you is what the difference uh, is. There's a lot of things that people are simply interested in knowing. Mm-hmm. I think we all have some level the rumor of mill. Yeah, curiosity about mm-hmm. what happened, and yeah. I think uh, also most people understand that a lot of that should be private and and kept with the individual should she ever do, should choose to disclose it and, and that's her right but i think there's also a question of public interest mm-hmm. here um so i'm curious if if 
from your perspective, perhaps you could share uh, what you see the difference being in, in, uh, in what's in the public interest to know in this case versus what the public is perhaps just interested in knowing about. Okay. So in terms of the public interest, when we're talking about government, it's really easy, right? It's their decision making. It's how they spend our money. It's how they create policies and what policies they give us and don't give us. So mm-hmm. it's very easy. And the mechanisms of accountability are clear. So the opposition asks, asks questions during question period and in uh, standing committees. The media then follows up for us and interest groups do their part informing us on how you know, various policies are going to impact their constituency. But when we start talking about caucus offices, it gets a little fuzzy. Mm-hmm. So they aren't in government. So they don't spend our money. They don't make policies. Sure, they help governments pass laws, but often the opposition parties vote against those laws, right? Mm -hmm. So there's very little to hold them to account. Now, where it's easy to hold an opposition party to account is in terms of the public money they get to spend. So making Mm -hmm. sure they spend it appropriately within the law. And 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 they're a party that wants to be the government. Right, sure, of course, yeah, yeah, right? So there's even more pressure on them to be accountable with that that, Mm -hmm. uh, money. Now, in in terms... um, of this issue, I think the public has a right to know that the party acted appropriately and swiftly. Mm-hmm. And we really only have a news conference, and I think it's two press releases. And fairly similar in content to the right. news conference. Right. And I mean, they didn't take up the whole page. Right. Um, <laughs> so that said, it's, it's, it's very difficult uh, to know where we should draw the line because we don't know the parameters of the incident. But I think in terms of this incident, um, what's important is that uh, they actually tried to resolve the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, they did look to the policy, um, even though they, you know, they acted a bit outside the policy in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they did look to the policy... So they were guided by something. Right. Um, and they did quickly seek the resignation of the leader. So I think they acted swiftly to, uh, you know, let the public know that they were doing something about uh, the allegation. Mm-hmm. Because there's no policy involved in terms of the internal operation that we're talking about in the office. Um, yeah. And there's no public money being spent. It's really difficult for us as citizens to extract something of substance. And so that really gets us to the, what's, what's the stuff that we want to sit down with our popcorn and consume, you know, yeah. versus what us as citizens should be able to take away from this, right? So I think at the end of the day, what's important is how they act it, and is there anything in place that will ensure it hasn't, it won't happen again? On the how they acted piece, mm-hmm. uh, it seems like that's, I mean, we know how the process began and we know how it ended, um, but any of the in-between, mm-hmm. any of the who else might have known things, mm-hmm. like, it, it would seem like they're the line uh, that, I guess, the new leadership of the party has drawn uh, is that they're protecting the individual, mm-hmm. which I think most people agree with. She should be protected. Um, I hope. Yeah, mm-hmm. I hopefully. Um, and but in in being so, I guess concealing there is there a chance? Do you think that they're protecting some 
someone other than the individual as well, whether that's the party or some of the um, reputation of the former leader? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it wouldn't be beyond a party to, to act that way. I'm not sure, and like you say, we don't know, but there, there are some, there's some evidence to suggest that, you know, they've put the cards that they can put on the table on mm-hmm. the table. Um, and I think that the fact that they did remove the leader so quickly mm-hmm. uh, helps to give some sort of credibility to their approach. Um, but yeah, there certainly are some questions that are unresolved. So even, you know, beyond your list, how long did people know before they came forward? How many people did know? Were there other people in positions of power that didn't do anything about this? Mm-hmm. But honestly, Mark, I don't know if we can ever extract those answers. I believe that they are within the public interest and right to know. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that we will ever be able to get that level of detail from the party. So if there is someone who knew and didn't come forward, Mm -hmm. or if someone had heard or seen something that they thought might have been inappropriate and didn't act, then we could suggest that the party is trying to cover something up. Mm -hmm. But we don't know that, and I don't think we're ever going to know that. If this were a sitting premier, let's say, Mm -hmm. what other, I guess, tools would the public have to hold that person to account? I don't know that it would be much different. So the public doesn't like this about Jamie Bailey right now, but the reality is, just like you and I, Mark, he's a private citizen. Right. And as a private citizen, he's got his right to privacy. Uh, He doesn't have to answer the door when the reporters show up. And that's part of the problem. But that would be the exact same thing if a premier or a prime minister found him or herself in the same position. I'm assuming because of the premier that they would be swiftly removed and then all of a sudden that individual becomes a private after the formalities of, you know, the right, left yeah. yeah, right. So he's, you know, we go through the formality, no longer the premier, and then it's going to be the same thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, I don't know that it matters. 51 of them are in the same situation at the House of Assembly. If they get themselves in that situation, they could respond exactly the way Jamie Bailey did. And mm-hmm. as... You know, citizens, we won't be pleased with it, but that's how it works. Beyond the the story around the PC party and and Jamie Bailey specifically, uh, it's been made clear by a number of women coming forward in the last uh, few weeks with their own, I guess, Me Too stories, dealing with everything from unfair treatment of women in politics to sexual harassment, assault, um, and and just the general culture. Uh, I guess it's clear that it's not something that's, and it's been clear probably for a while, that it's not something that's limited to the the PC PC party. but how would you describe the culture uh, of politics in this regard when you started working in it? There's, when I first started, there was elements of equality, parity, respect. Um, and there's always this language of the family, right? You become part of the family, the liberal family. Mm-hmm. So, and that does exist and continue to exist in my experience. But after a while, you also realize that MLAs recognize that they have power and they like to use it. And in most situations, it doesn't impact you as a woman. But in some situations, they do act inappropriately. And uh, that is often the case with anything that involves after work or outside work activities. Hmm. And when you're part of a family, Mark, there are a lot of activities. And they often involve alcohol. Hmm. 
Um, and power and alcohol can be a dangerous concoction. Um, so it was in those situations where I noticed that women were treated differently than men more than any other time, you mm. know, during my, my time with the family, if you will. Like in, I, can give, I won't name names, yeah, but course. I can certainly give you examples. So, for example, uh, at an out-of-town caucus retreat, uh, I had a room that had an adjoining door with the next room. And the next room happened to be occupied by an MLA who told me I should leave the adjoining door open so that he could join me during the evening. Hmm. Um, often, uh, often uh, during meetings with uh, senior staff, um, and there wasn't a lot of us, uh, the, 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 the meeting wouldn't start immediately. There'd be this preamble, these discussions that always had uh, a sexual nature to them, or at least undertones, but usually they weren't so under. Right. Um, and it was to the point where I would say, okay, I'm, I'm going to leave, go back to my office, and when you guys are ready to actually have a meeting, mm-hmm. um, I'll come back. Uh, you know, yeah. Otherwise, I've got work to do, and I don't need to hear these stories. Um, MLAs would like to attend the standing committees when they knew that the public servants who were going to be also attending, uh, representing the government side, uh, were attractive. So there are a couple of deputy ministers that, you know, a couple of the MLAs found attractive, and um, they would all want to go to that standing committee meeting where other times it would be, you'd, you know, you'd be dragging them there by the nose. Right. Um, and, of course, there was always the discussion about how these deputies looked, and, you know, uh, there was an MLA who liked high heels. So there's these kind of things. Um, I've also seen MLAs... Either give large bills to pages at after, uh, so when a... These when are a, not, like, proposed laws. Right, so, no, yes, right, pages, the human beings that uh, assist the MLAs in the House of Assembly. Oh, I was referring to bills, not being, you know, it's not a bill. Oh, 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 yes, You're no, they were, like they were 50s, $50 bills or $100 bills. Um, so they would either give them the cash at a bar, so at a, a we would call them a house wrap party, mm-hmm. and uh, they, they would give the pages these large amounts of money. I just want to point out I never, ever received any money from any of the MLAs. Um, so they'd either give them money or they would buy them drinks. I admit it, right. MLAs have purchased me drinks. Um, never give me bills. I would mm-hmm. slip those in my pocket. Um, <laughs> so those are examples. Uh, when I was observing it, uh, and because they, they weren't supplying me with a, a great deal of money or drink, mm-hmm. that there was a purpose in doing so. And pages are generally very young, mm-hmm. and they see these MLAs as powerful individuals. Um, they work with them in the house. They understand what they do, and they see them acting on that power on a regular basis. Right, And, and the MLAs know that. And a lot of them are, uh, the ones I've known anyways, come mm. from a, a partisan background themselves. They and absolutely see do. partisan right. uh, careers as something they'd like to pursue. So right. there's a, a power dynamic and there. Yeah. So that means they're part of the family. And would you say, because I think for a lot of people, uh, my sense is that a lot of that still goes on. But yes. it's operating in this world that's quite secretive to most people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not part of the politics that we see that gets That's reported right. on mm-hmm. daily uh, where we hear first-person accounts of um, for obvious reasons. Based on your understanding, has that significantly changed? 
So I've, I've been gone for almost a decade, but from my understanding and from what we're hearing, no. Hmm. I can tell you that nothing changed during my, my time there. No, there were no improvements. Hmm. No. So stepping back, I guess, from, from Nova Scotia politics, there was a lot of other stories that came out last week. Uh, the conservative leader in Ontario uh, resigned after uh, some accusations, allegations came out uh, about his behavior. Uh, the conservative party president in Ontario resigned. Um, I just wanted to read uh, quickly something that uh, Graham Steele wrote on, on Facebook last week, which I, I think captured some of, uh, I guess, what he saw and, and a lot of people have agreed with uh, as contributing to this culture. Uh, so he wrote, politics has all the ingredients for sexual harassment to thrive, male-dominated power structures, the premium placed on party loyalty or family loyalty, uh, mm-hmm. a code of silence, precarious employment for political staff. Should we su- be surprised that it happens? No, but politicos have ways to keep it quiet. The cone of silence descends. Staff are shuffled around or ushered out. Politicians are allowed to resign quietly. Everyone who knows keeps quiet for the good of the party. Maybe things are, are changing, though. Um, mm-hmm. And I think uh, one of the things that we hear a lot about in, in our work, and I, I know you hear about it from your students because they've uh, mentioned it to me when I've come to your classes, that the the idea of strict loyalty and blind faith mm-hmm. and um, whipped votes are a big um, turn off for a lot of people for mm-hmm. a lot of different reasons mm-hmm. for politics, but I was surprised. Uh, and traditionally, it's men that are the ones that break ranks. If you look at kind of the the, the big names that we know of as being um, more independent-minded, mm-hmm. um, Bill Casey, Howard Epstein, Bruce Heyer, um, a lot of the federal examples of, of men that have, uh, of people that have broke ranks with their party are men traditionally. Um, so I thought it was interesting to see uh, Conservative MP Michelle Rempel speaking out this week against her own party in the House of Commons after allegations surfaced about the, the former Conservative MP uh, and Ontario Party President uh, Rick Dixtra and uh, the allegations that came out of him assaulting a Conservative staffer. And uh, this is what she said. Is it possible for a drunk staffer to give consent for sex to a senior male in a workplace organization who aggressively propositions them? Within any standard workplace code of conduct, the answer to that should be unequivocally no. Today there was a report that at one critical point within my party this was a topic for debate, and that is disgusting. In that incident, media reports say that people sat around a very senior table and argued semantics around whether action in our workplace should be taken because criminal charges weren't proceeded with. They should be ashamed of themselves, and they should have no role or influence in this or in any political party. That's not something you generally hear an MP say about their own party, mm-hmm. particularly any issue, uh, let alone on the floor of the House of Commons, and we certainly don't hear staffers speaking out, but all of that has, has started to happen this week. Um, and it seems like the assumptions that parties have built their own political machinery around for getting business done in the House, for getting elections won, those aren't necessarily safe assumptions to make anymore. And I wonder if this could have perhaps a lasting effect on some of those broader unwritten rules that are yeah. pretty well written. So I think only one thing might change. What's that? And that is how women are treated. So I think male politicians are going to think twice before they supply that $50 bill in a public setting, at least. Mm -hmm. I think they're going to think twice about whether they can really, you know, hug and grope a woman at an AGM Mm -hmm. for an extended period of time when 
they know, uh, you know, the gig is up, that people are watching and people are, are paying attention in a way that they haven't before. But I think that's the only thing that's going to change. I don't think party discipline is going to be impacted by this. I don't think uh, loyalty to uh, the party or to the leader is going to change. I think the only thing we're going to see is perhaps better treatment of women. And that gets back to the fact that political parties have one goal, and that's to get elected or re-elected. And party discipline helps them do that. Loyalty by members helps them do that. And everyone in the family knows that, whether they're mm. elected, they work for the party, or they volunteer for the party, or they donate money to the party. Mm. And if people continue to do those things, the only thing that can change is women are treated equally. And that would be a good thing. <laughs> that would be a good thing. If, <laughs> anyway. if, if that's all that comes from this, I'll be very happy. Two right. thumbs up. And I guess specifically... I mean, what do you think the pathway is for that? Because there are people in parties right now or in, in positions of power mm -hmm. who, uh, for whatever reason, thought they could get away with this because mm -hmm. it, they could get away with it mm -hmm. for as long as they did. Uh, obviously, the culture is changing, but is that going to have a ripple effect on, you know, the path that men that occupy these positions have to take in order to, um, to be in a position to decide, no, we're not going to treat women that way anymore? Maybe. I think, I think that change is slow with uh, parties, but uh, particularly within the elected you know, section of a party, mm -hmm. because the, the neophytes coming in, the newly elected MLAs, look to the seasoned MLAs for guidance. Right. And so you never get a clean slate. You get new folks coming in looking to old folks. Therefore, there's no new way of doing something because the new guys, you know, really rely on, on the, the older folk to mm -hmm. guide their way. So I think that's one reason that things are s slow to change. Uh, I think power also plays a huge role. What do you mean by that? Governments, so cabinet ministers feel that they're tremendously powerful because they're controlling the political agenda for an entire population. And they're deciding where the money goes, they're deciding where the money doesn't go, and I, I believe at the end of the day that makes them feel very powerful. And that power makes them feel that they can act in particular ways. And so this is what I mean when I say that the, the culture is slow to change because there's never a clean slate. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's just the same old ideas and uh, philosophies in terms of how the gender should be treated. Where if you had a completely new slate of MLAs coming in after an election, you don't have that to reach out to. So you right. have to create your own culture sitting around the table. So, so you're saying when that opportunity well, presents I, itself, yeah, or when if, that, if, if that happens? Well, and we may, we may have had a little opportunity, right, with this movement that, that's afoot. Uh -huh. But historically, I believe that's one reason that, you know, things change so slowly within parties. Well, I guess I'm, I'm even thinking about, like, things like the, the, the vetting process that... Um, that's something, that's something I think is going to change, Mark. But I think that the parties are going to spend more time looking into the backgrounds of their candidates. Mm -hmm. uh, and a focus is going to look on whether there's ever been any uh, indication that uh, a candidate 
uh, has treated uh, the opposite gender poorly. Mm-hmm. And I think there's going to be some serious consideration given if they conclude, yes, there's some issues here. Where before they would just go, okay, some issues, but we can deal with that if we have to. We've got communications folks who can right, get us yeah. out of this. The culture is different then. Right. Could and the reality is that by way. the time that any of this comes out, we're going to, get, we're going to be elected. So, you know, really, yeah. we'll solve it by throwing money at something. That's not where we're at anymore. I don't think we're there anymore. <laughs> so I had a conversation with someone else who teaches political science. Who, uh, Mark? Who? <laughs> this is Catherine Friedelbrecht, uh, okay. who teaches at Dell. Yeah. And uh, this is several years ago now, but it was when we were starting to do this work. Uh, and I asked her how she approaches going into um, a political science classroom with a wealth of knowledge, knowing that she has to teach people introductory political science and her answer was it's not actually that's not actually the problem that's pretty easy the hard part is my job is to go into the classroom uh, and ensure that everybody leaves with more information uh, about how our political system works uh, than they came in with and she Mm -hmm. said the problem is I can't figure out how to do that without making them not want to participate in that system so I guess I was curious about you know you're coming from just having taught a political science class mm-hmm. and you're trying to teach people uh, some of the basics um, mm-hmm. and, and some of the more advanced concepts mm-hmm. around this stuff. But how do you deal with issues like this when they come into, uh, I guess, the news while you're you know, teaching and, and how does that show up in, in the classroom? So um, un- I do have an example, but unfortunately it's not one based on, on gender, uh, but it is one based on decolonization. I'm interested. So, if we look at what's happening, so we've got a decolonization movement happening, we've got a Me Too movement happening, and we have an LGBT2 community movement happening, right? Mm. So, if we, if we break this down, what's really happening is members of society who haven't felt equal are coming forward. Mm-hmm. And we haven't seen that before in the way we're seeing it now, at least in, right. in our lifetime. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, as my class was about to begin, um, I was talking to a group uh, in front of my desk uh, who were talking about uh, HRM's Halifax's decision to remove uh, the Cornwallis statue from Cornwallis Park. And a student on the other end of the class heard me and said, oh, are we going to talk about that? And mm. I said, guys... Quiz next class, I have to get through the material. If I get through the material, we can talk about Cornwallis. I got through the material. So at the end of class, I let those who didn't want to stay go. So I would only have the ones that were engaged and actually wanted to have the discussion. Uh-huh. But we had the discussion. So How this many is, stayed? Um, I would um, probably t- 17 to 20 out of about 60. So okay. that's, that's not bad, right? Hmm. And, uh, yeah, so I gave them the option to leave. So, yeah, but still, that was was not bad. Um, So it was an opportunity to bring something that was actually happening in the political community into the classroom and Mm. have a discussion that didn't involve slides, that didn't involve, you know, getting through something because it's on the quiz that they have on Monday. Right. Um, And we were just able to, to kind of break it down. And so... That's what we did. And so it's, there's a, you know, a group in society that doesn't feel equal. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's important that all members of society feel equal? If you do, 
how do we do that? And if we use this statue as an example, how do we get there? Mm-hmm. Right? Recognizing that we all have to compromise, recognizing that we're coming at it from different perspectives, but all members of the same community that all want resolve, how do we get there? Hmm. So I guess that's one way that I try to mm-hmm. bring it in. And then, of course, when I do that, I can then talk, okay, so these are small C perspectives, these are small L perspectives. So right. I remind them that it's important to take political science because it really is all about the real world and managing the political community. Yeah. yeah. I know that's something we've found, too, is that when we're doing things like this, which is talking about issues that are um, kind of timely and, and active versus talking about general broad concepts there's at least a portion of the population for whom that makes it more interesting to learn Mm. about what's actually going on yeah i mean you you make it real for them and you you make them realize that these are not just concepts that they have to study and when the course is over they're never going to hear again Mm. i mean who gets through a day without hearing authority legitimacy right justice fairness equality we don't especially these days it's not happening so i i think that uh, what's happening in society is helping me make this real for them but it's real well thanks for doing this michelle thanks cuz That is this week's episode of Offscript. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, we think you'll really enjoy getting it every week. You can subscribe to the podcast, search for Offscript wherever you find podcasts. If you're not into podcasts, if what I said just now means nothing to you, you can still subscribe by email and go to the page where you uh, listen to this podcast on our website. If you're not already there, punch in your email address on the right hand side sidebar and we'll send you an email each Wednesday when there's a new show to listen to. Offscript is a podcast produced by Springtide. We are a Canadian charity committed to helping people lead change through politics with their integrity intact. Find us on the web, www.springtide.ngo. Follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash springtideco, Twitter, at springtideco, and you can find me on Twitter, at Mark Coffin. <laughs>